You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Today's reading is from Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the seven letters to the churches. And as it says there, it can be found on page 1089 of the Pew Bible. The letter to Phesus. Write to the angel of the church in Phesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labour and your endurance and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and I have grown and have grown not weary, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first, Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to hear Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The letter to Smyrna. Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for ten days. Be be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. The letter to Pergamum. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. You are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you, where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to to idols and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, 
you, have, you also have those who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has the ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden mana. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. The letter to Thyatira. Write to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first. But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction. Unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts. I will give, each, I will give to each of you according to your works. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I am not putting any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery, just as I have received this from my father. I will also give him the morning star. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The letter to Sardis. Write to the angel of the church in Sardis. Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die. For I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief and you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes and I will never erase his name from the book of life but will acknowledge his name before my father and before his angels. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The letter to Philadelphia. 
write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Thus says the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close, because you have but little power. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole earth to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out from the which comes down out of heaven for my God and my new name. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The letter to Laodicea. Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. I know your works, that you are not that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I have become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise, advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, an ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come, come in to him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Hope you're feeling blessed. Um, the reason that we're reading even really lengthy readings all through this service and something that we should probably do more often um, rather than trying to t trim down readings for the sake of time is just what we learned in the first chapter, the third verse of this book, that blessed are those who read aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and keep it, for the time is near. So 
hope you're feeling blessed. If I haven't met you, my name's Jonathan. I'm the vicar here and really is just the best thing I get to do each week um, is coming here and doing my best uh, by God's grace to help explain his word to us. And we believe that God's word is authoritative. That is, it doesn't just tell us what to do and have the right to tell us what to do, but it changes us. It's a means by which God transforms us to be more like his son. And really at the bottom of it all, that's what we want. Each one of us, I I hope, wants to be made more like Jesus because he is just the greatest example of anyone who's ever lived, the one whom we are following and emulating, the one who we are submitting to and worshipping here this morning. And it's he who has given us these messages to the churches that we'll dwell on this morning. John wrote them down, but they came from Jesus himself. So I want to ask you, what what do you look for in a good church? In a good church, what do you look for? Um, Most of you, most of you have come to this church from other churches. You were doing the church shopping thing, the church hopping thing. You probably had a kind of idea. It's like, you know, it's, it's like, Dating, you know, it's um, it's you, you got to have some idea of what you're looking for, otherwise you end up with, you know, someone less than ideal, and so that's what you've done. I mean, I I hope. I mean, there's a few people here who didn't do any church shopping; they became Christians here, and they've been here ever since. I'm hoping that number will increase as we see more people coming to faith for the first time. But most of you have come here with an idea of what a good church is. So do you want to give me some of your your top five? What are you looking for? Good teaching. I apologize. Who else has got clocks ticking? Say again. Good fellowship. Yeah. Welcome. Good. Genuineness. Mm -hmm. Say again. I didn't get that. Bible based. Thank you. Yeah, Bible based. Mm-hmm. Oh, Ludi. Give that man a clap. Making all of life all about Jesus. What are the chances that you found this, that? Uh, okay. So, yeah, I, I mean, I asked you to contribute things, and you weren't likely to tell me it was, you know, how clean the toilets are, but. They, they are considerations people have when they're looking for churches. I was looking at the research this last week. The top three, in the biggest survey that I could find, the top three things were friendly atmosphere, so fellowship, welcome, uh, kids program, and um, am I doing something wrong here that's making this click? Oh, yeah, this isn't very tight. Hang on a second. My bad. Um, yeah, so friendly atmosphere, kids program, and worship music were the top three that people were looking for in a church, and all of those things are great things, you know? Um, if, you've, if you've got a friendly atmosphere that's a genuinely friendly atmosphere and not a facade, uh, if you have a great kids program that's going to invest in your loved ones and, you know, music that helps you worship God, all these things are great things. By the way, on music, uh, in two weeks' time, we plan to commission Josh Hennessy as our worship leader, our music leader, and so we always give you 
with, with re- these key leadership uh, positions. We always give you a couple of weeks just so that you can come to me uh, in private and uh, tell me if you think that he shouldn't be a leader in our church. That's not a joke. That's a legitimate kind of um, a necessary opportunity we give you to speak into that. Uh, I have no reservations, and um, and so you better let me know in the next two weeks if you do. So music, yeah, wonderful. Um, I, if you go further on through the research, it doesn't. You know, there are certain things that people look for that aren't. You know, wouldn't be on my top five, but you know, it's great that we've got a car park that you can actually park in. Um, it's great that we've got a building that's you know, secure. Uh, these are good things, things that we should praise God for. Uh, even the most basic material things are things that we should be grateful for. But what we're doing this morning is looking at letters that Jesus has uh, dictated to churches that reveal what Jesus looks for in a good church. And so this is what I want us to come away with today, a really clear picture. If, you know, God help us, if you guys all have to leave sometime and find another church, these are the kind of priorities that you ought to have in your mind, along with car parking and other stuff. One thing we can know for sure is that um, Jesus' view of what makes a good church isn't what... um, isn't the same thing that we would look for in other organizations like schools or football clubs or fast food restaurants. They're they're not the things that sometimes we impose on churches or or project onto churches like, I don't know, um, don't have to wait too long for a coffee or something like that. Those are not the things that he's looking at. In fact, the things that he commends are in some ways sort of opposite for what we look for in good functioning organizations today. Two churches that he says absolutely nothing good about are the two churches that are rich and prosperous and successful. The two that he has nothing but good things to say about are suffering and doing it really tough. The other three get a mixed response from Jesus and we probably put ourselves in that category as well if we're honest. But all I'm going to do this morning is really just take a survey. I know you're probably hearing that reading. You're worried about getting away before dinner, but I'm not going to, we're not going to do every verse this morning. I'm going to, just going to survey um, what Jesus says to these churches and really focus in on what he has to say, uh, not entirely just his criticisms, but I think they help us see really clearly in stark sort of contrast Um, the kind of church that Jesus values, the kind of church that he thinks is good. So you remember, we've got these churches, the seven churches uh, on the map there. John's on Patmos, receiving this word from Jesus and sending this letter to those churches. So uh, there will be things that we can take away from this that are absolutely applicable to us. We need to remember this is a, a letter, series of letters written to these churches, real people, in a real historical context. So, as we come to hear this from Jesus, some of the stuff he's going to say is, is pretty harsh. You know, like, especially if your vision of Jesus is the meek and mild one holding the lamb and, you know, um, hippie Jesus, this is going to be like, what, really? Did he really say that? Um, but it's true. Remember, Jesus is not just the meek and mild lamb hugger he is who we saw last week and who we're going to see revealed here today. He is 
the ruling, risen, reigning king, conquering king. And so when he says these things, you need to know he's coming with authority to say them. If you've ever had a work appraisal done in your workplace, uh, then you need to know what authority that person has to tell you what kind of job you're doing, right? You want to make sure it's not the work experience kid who's telling you that you need to do better with your admin or something, you know? It's got to be, it's got to be a boss. It's got to be an owner. It's got to be a manager, someone who has authority to tell you where you're going right and where you're going wrong. And that's what we have here this morning. So if anything sort of prickles within you, or if you're of the personality, like most of us are, that wants to sort of push back and be defensive when we receive criticism, then you need to know the person giving you this appraisal is the only one who has authority to do it. The only one who has ultimate authority. Let me just read, and this is going to be real quick, just survey of what John says to these churches about who it is that's giving them the, this appraisal. And it's really what he said last week spread over the seven churches. So in verse 1 of chapter 2, write to the angel of the church in Ephesus, thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. You remember that's the, the angels of the seven churches, the messengers, and who walks among the seven golden lampstands, the seven churches one who is over and in the church. And then he moves on uh, to the church in Smyrna, and you need to hear the, the, the language here is that language of prophecy, Old Testament prophecy, thus saith the Lord, right? This comes with the authority of God himself. Thus says the first and the last, Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end, right? The one who was dead and came to life, that's Jesus, he goes on to the church in Pergamum, thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. That's his, remember that sword coming out of his mouth? His words carry authority to cleave us, to do, to do surgery on us, to pierce our hearts. And he goes on to the church in Thyatira, Thus says the Son of God, in case you were wondering who that is, it's the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. And more, he says, to the church in Sardis, thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God, that's the Holy Spirit, seven being the number of completion or maybe perfection, the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And on he goes right to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Thus says the holy one, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close and closes and no one opens. Ultimate authority. And finally, to the church in Laodicea, thus says the amen the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. Yes, yeah, so he's got authority, all right? No matter what comes next, he's got authority to tell us. And our only, re to be honest, our only response can be reception. Reception, not defense, but reception. Take it to heart. Take it to heart, and as he says over and over again, where you are out of step with what he says, repent. You know, repenting is just 
acknowledging that I'm walking away from God's will and God's word, and then at that acknowledgement, whether it comes but through God's scripture, by his spirit from a trusted brother or sister, I turn around. Repent means turn around. Turn around. We're going to hear that over and again. So, let me just, final preparation for hearing what he has to say, let me just put it in the context of the spirit in which he says it. This is what's coming from his heart, even as he rebukes and disciplines. Chapter 3, verse 19, he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. So if you are rebuked this morning, if you are feeling disciplined, then that's good news must be that you're loved. Like a good daddy, good mummy, God disciplines the ones he loves. Now, the key theme, now that you know Jesus' heart in saying this, the key theme, if you wanted one big idea, is, uh, well, the key theme, and you'll find it if you read this in the original language in the Greek, you'd see it just speckled all throughout this these two chapters, um, and it's, there's a symbol that symbolizes this theme that you guys are probably really familiar with. Some of you are wearing it this morning. Can anyone guess, before I show it to you, can anyone guess what the symbol is all throughout this, these two chapters? The cross? It's not a cross. Good guess. Nobody? There's absolutely no reason for you to know this, by the way. This is what preachers do when they want to make you feel dumb, all right? Uh, makes us feel better about ourselves. Show us the symbol there, guys. What, what, do, what do we got? Oh, it's completely blank. You know why? I've done this before. Because I put a transparent image up, and that's... Um, See, that's what God did to me to bring me back down from feeling superior. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. He disciplines the ones he loves. All right, the, the symbol is a swoosh. It's the symbol of Nike. Nike is all throughout these two chapters. Nike is the Greek goddess of victory, of conquering, and, uh, and so the, the Greek word nikeo, if you were looking at it, um, Ask Marios, he'll show it to you in the original. Uh, and uh, you'll see Nikeo, the one who, Nikeos, or, or, or the derivative, appropriate derivative, um, is what you see in the text. Jesus has conquered so that we can conquer. Jesus has Nikeed so that we can Nike. And, um, and even, uh, he, here's something that um, may not be of any use to anybody, but uh, e- even just that, that symbol itself, um, the swoosh, the, the, the sort of going, the, the downward into the upward is kind of symbolic for what this book means by conquering, by victory. Now, we're in the book of Revelation, so you hear all kinds of weird things from weird people about what symbols mean, what numbers mean, what colors mean. Um, I'm not saying anything like that, okay? Not, not the Nike swoosh, had, John had no idea 
all right? He had no idea that that's what they were going to go with. Um, and there is no connection <laughs> between the corporation Nike and what John's talking about here, except that that, that kind of image is worth keeping in mind. The, the Christian method, first demonstrated by Jesus and then by his followers for conquering, for victory, for Nike, is downward to death and then upward to resurrection. It always is. It always will be. We're going to see that clearly this morning. So let's jump into it. I'm just going to work through each of these churches and and note one thing that Jesus says to them. So please do keep that text open, and I'll, um, I'll direct us where to go. First of all, let's look at Ephesus, the first letter written to the church in Ephesus. And, uh, and I want to focus on verse 4 to 5. Jesus says, after having really commended them for their doctrinal integrity, right, for their commitment to truth, for their unwavering sort of um, tethering themselves to the apostolic truth of the gospel, he then says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Wow. Commended for commitment to truth. Some of you might be uh, recognizing this sort of pattern Uh, in your own church experience, right? Real commitment to truth. We will stand for the truth. We're not going to go the way of the world. We know what is true, and we will not compromise. But the sad reality is, at least in my own experience, that very often those churches lack love. They lack love for God and for others, particularly the other those who aren't part of our tribe. And I think that's really what Jesus is pointing out to these people. It's not necessarily the love they have for God. That is evident in their commitment to truth. But he says, uh, remember the love you had at first, but he goes on to say, repent and do the works you did at first. The works, works of love. Works of mercy, works that have characterized Christian churches from the beginning because Jesus himself was merciful and kind, accepting of the other. John, and if this is the same John as the apostle and the same John that wrote the gospel and the same John that wrote the letters, then he uh, is very familiar with this problem and he goes on and on and on about it in first. John, can we pull that up, guys? He says, the one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So it is possible for a church to say, we know the truth, we know the gospel, we know the Bible, and John says, yeah, but you don't know God. (sighs) Unless you have love, then you don't know God. 
And Jesus' threat to them is very real. I will come and take your lampstand. That is, you won't be a church anymore. (laughs) I'm going to make that noise quite a bit this morning. (laughs) Makes me tremble. I'm assuming that what Jesus says to these seven churches are the very same things he would say to churches today, including ours. So this is heavy. This is weighty, and it's absolutely necessary. We're going to have a meeting after church today talking a lot about the sort of mission and direction of our church, but if that direction is left to me, we are screwed, my friends. We are. We are. I'm just far too limited, far too sinful to be relied upon to steer this ship Jesus is our chief shepherd. We need to hear what he says to the churches. This is why it says over and over again, those who have ears, listen, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, including ours. All right, we've got to keep moving. I'm going to, we're going to be here all day long, all right? Smyrna, poor Smyrna. Um, they are suffering, but they are, they, are, um, they are doing well. Smyrna, verse 10, he says to them, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful. Be faithful to the point of death. And I will give you the crown of life. Poor Smyrna. Afflicted. Persecuted. Imprisoned by Satan. It's how much they are hated by our adversary. And Jesus says, not, but I will keep you safe. Not, I'm stronger than Satan, so nothing bad will happen to you, but be faithful, even to the point of death. And I will give you the crown of life. Paul will say it in Romans 8 that these present afflictions are not worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory. That's his encouragement. That's Jesus' encouragement to this church. You may die, but I will give you a crown of life. The crown is something you give to an athlete who wins a race, to those who persevere through that race and break the tape, even as they're being put to death. Jesus says, the crown is yours, the crown of life, of eternal life. I don't know how much you feel like this word to this church is kind of appropriate for us to hear or applicable, like how many of us are going to have to persevere to the point of death, I mean being put to death? Maybe none of us. But we're in the minority, you know? Do you know how weird we are? Do you know how weird we are as Christians? (laughs) that we have no threat 
Like, I can't think of a thing that could go wrong this morning. Like, the power goes out? Oh, no. <laughs> uh, like, what, what's going to happen? Our brothers and sisters around the world don't enjoy that kind of comfort. They're praising Jesus, trying to focus on him, but part of their brain is aware that any time now the door could be broken down. In our ministry team meetings on Tuesday morning, we're listening to an audio book, a version of God's Smuggler, which is an incredible book, one of my favorites, and tells what it was like for Christians beyond the Iron Curtain in, in Eastern Europe, you know, not, you know, 60 years ago, and... There was just constant threat. There was constant, in the back of the mind, worry about someone finding out. What if someone finds out that we have a Bible, a Bible, in our church? I looked up some statistics of when it comes to what we call martyrs, it's another word you find throughout the book of Revelation, wherever you see the word witness or testimony, it's that same root word, martyr. And uh, here's what I came up with. I think I've got something, yeah, there we go. The Center for Study of Global Christianity says 900,000 Christians, this is 2017, okay? So 2007 to 2017, um, 900,000 Christians have been martyred in the last decade equating to 90,000 a year or one every six minutes. One every six minutes. So, considering how we're traveling so far, that's like 10 Christians during this sermon. That was a joke. I'm hoping it's more like five. I heard another statistic that one in 120 Christians for all of time, for the last 2,000 years, have been killed for their faith. One in 120 for all of Christian history. And we, a really good day at our church, that's one, one of us is going down. So I don't know how much... You take from his words to the church in Smyrna, but most of the Christians who have ever lived take a lot from it. It's an exhortation to persevere. Stay true. Be faithful. Even to the point of death, I'll give you the crown of life. Pergamum. What does he say to Pergamum? Verse 14 to 16, he says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites. He's using Old Covenant imagery, Old Covenant story, not naming the person in the church outright, but saying, you know that guy in your church who looks a lot like Balaam? That group who are leading you astray, putting a stumbling block in front of you. In the case of the old covenant story, it was they were eating meat, sacrificed to idols, committing sexual immorality. In the same way, you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent. 
Otherwise, I'm going to come and do make war. I'm going to come and make war against those false teachers with the sword of my mouth. My word is going to come and do some correction, some training, some reproof, some rebuke. In Pergamum, there is false doctrine and false worship. It looks a lot like where Israel went wrong in the Old Testament, and Jesus is jealous for his church. Do you know that? God is jealous. It's good to be jealous. Not envious. Envy is when you want something that belongs to someone else and it doesn't belong to you, but you want it anyway. Jealousy is when you want something that belongs to you. If you're married here, you should be jealous for your spouse's body. It belongs to you. You are one flesh. God is jealous for his people. They are his bride. And it's his jealousy for his people that fuels his passion, his zeal, that they not be led astray by these false teachers into false worship and sexual immorality. You can't get around that fact in this text. It's going to come back and back and back. It's hard for us to hear in our culture that one of the biggest problems Jesus has with the churches is their sexual promiscuity. But it's true. Jesus has always been clear, don't believe the hype, don't believe the headlines that say Jesus didn't care about sexual ethics. Jesus in the book of Revelation comes back to it again and again and again. All sex outside of one man and one woman, one flesh for life is indicative of a cancer that needs to be cut out. And the reason he talks about it is because he loves us. He cares for us. He rebukes and disciplines the ones he loves. Repent. If you find yourself in the category of someone that in this text Jesus is rebuking, then your only option, well, I guess you've got a couple, you could say, I don't accept that authority, thank you. Or you've got to say, Lord, help me. I want to be obedient. I'm a follower of Jesus. He's not my consultant. He's my Lord. So repent, he says, so repent. I'm so grateful that we sang that hymn by Martin Luther. I I read you that verse from it last week, and then Leslie's got us to sing it this morning. Mighty fortress is our God. For Luther, for Martin Luther, this, uh, this, this requirement of God for us to repent, not just at the point where we first express faith in Jesus, but a daily 
minute-by-minute repentance was how he understood the whole Christian life. In fact, when he nailed that 95 Theses to the door where he was outlining his kind of manifesto for the Christian life, the first one that he wrote, the first of his theses, I've got it written down. This is what he said. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of continual repentance. Thyatira, verse 20, he says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Again, an Old Testament figure used here as symbolic of a woman who is, well, let's read it. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Hmm. Tolerance is something that Jesus rebukes. If that's not jarring for you, then you don't live in this generation. You're from another time. The idea that tolerance might be a bad thing is hard for us to hear, but here it's very clear. Not the kind of tolerance that welcomes the other, that sees in every person on the earth the, some, the, the, the image of God reflected. He's not denouncing any kind of tolerance that is Christ-like in its welcome, but here the specific tolerance or lack of intolerance for false teaching. There's this woman. He calls her Jezebel after the, the woman in the Old Testament who led the people of God astray, the king himself. The woman, this prophetess, she says she has the words of God. She teaches and deceives. And the result is, again, sexual immorality and false worship. For their tolerance of her, Jesus rebukes them. We need to know that as a church, in order to be Christ-like in the way that we interact with those around us, in order to be like Christ, we both have to be full of grace and truth. I know I go on about this again, but it's just it is the way of Jesus, full of grace and truth. That is open-hearted welcome to all people, those made in God's image, valued and loved by him, and a commitment to tell them the truth, even if that is by way of rebuke, correction. You see this with with Jesus and the woman in John John chapter 8, right? It's just such a perfect distillation of this. Simon talked about it a few weeks ago when he's talking about how Jesus interacted with women. You have him in, in such a 
the, the woman caught in adultery, right? You have him full of compassion for this woman, protective of her, uh, judging those who wanted to put her to death. And then at the end, very end of the story, once those people have left, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. And he says, full of grace and truth, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on do not sin anymore. If you have one of those without the other, you're not being Christ-like. And most of us gravitate towards one over the other. Again, there are churches here that are either gravitating towards truth without love or love without truth, but Jesus says, no, you must be both. To be a Christian is to follow Jesus, and Jesus was full of grace and truth. And this is the big, this is the big thing, right? This is the rest of your life, is to figure out with God's help and by his grace how you can live in this city of Babylon and interact with its people in a way that's full, right? The, the, the needle is over on the F, full of both grace and truth. That's the Christian life. Sardis. Let's go to Sardis. Oh, boy. Verse 11. I'm coming soon, Jesus says. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. Hold on. Beg your pardon. Back up. I'm wrong, aren't I? Sardis is not, verse 11. That's Philly. All right. Sardis is chapter 3. Verse 3. Who votes that I start having more notes? I'm not, I don't care. All right, verse 3. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief, and you have no idea at what time I will come upon you, Jesus says echoing what he said in his earthly ministry about his second coming for judgment, all right? Be alert. This church, the problem with Sardis is that they are Australian. You know what I mean? Just go, she'll be right. They are sleepwalking sleepwalking through life, even as a church, right? A church saved by grace, committed to the Lord Jesus, under the authority of local church leadership, they are sleepwalking. And Jesus says, wake up, be alert. The time is near. I'm coming soon. This stuff matters. How you live matters. It has eternal consequences and eternal significance. Be alert. I got a call in the middle of the night last night. I was dead to the world. I was just someone who who needed to talk to me, and I 
I don't know how many times they called before I finally woke up, and I picked it up, and I said hello, and then I don't remember anything else, because I fell back asleep. And they had to call me again and say, "Uh, no, I actually really need you to be awake for this, right? And that's just what it's like when you are, especially if you're like me, and you just, you, you, I mean, it's going to be hard to wake up if Jesus comes back, all right, let alone someone calling. Um, If you're like me, it's hard. It's hard to get out of sleep mode. That's the problem with Sardis. They are stuck in sleep mode. And Jesus says to them, wake up. Hold on. Persevere. Be alert. I, my my like, deep encouragement to you, if you're a Christian here today, is to, I was going to say surround yourself. You need at least one. If there's six to go around you, even better. People who are alert. People who are awake. I've got some of you guys in this church who are like this. You just see everything through the lens of the gospel. Like everything, every, every situation we find ourselves in, you're thinking through the eyes of faith. Does that make sense? That's who you want around you. I was talking to a young guy just yesterday who has been, had gone through a whole bunch of stuff, has spent a couple of years really walking away from the faith of his family, the faith that he grew up in, and he said to me, not, not me, but he said to me, the key problem for me was that I stopped going to church, I was surrounded by people that I don't want to be like, And so I started living like they lived and thinking like they thought and talking like they talked. And he said, the only thing that's changed is that I'm now part of a regular worshipping community. He didn't use those words, but that's what he meant. Like he, he goes to church regularly and is surrounded by people who see with the eyes of faith. That's the whole thing. And I said to him, yes. That is the key difference maker in my life as well. We hope for more. We pray for more. You know, daily Bible reading, constant prayer and repentance and exercise of spiritual disciplines. But a keystone in your perseverance in faith is going to be being part of a regular worshipping community. And by regular, you know, that word comes from the word ruler, just regular, like a heartbeat. Some people conceive of church services as this mountaintop event, and every Sunday you've got to get to the top of this incredible experience. I don't see it that way. The Anglican church isn't put together that way. It's put together like a ruler, and just a regular, regular, like week in, week out, gathering for mutual encouragement and nourishment, the feeding of God's people. That's what we're on about, and, and, and you've got to be plugged into that. Surrounded by people who see, who are alert, who are awake. We're out of time. We've got to be quick. Let's go to Philadelphia. Now we go to verse 11 of chapter 3. Okay? I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. Know that you have a crown already. It's got your name on it. It's being kept in heaven by God's power, according to the Apostle Peter. 
That crown is waiting for your perseverance, your, your, your consistent, long-term commitment and faithfulness and fidelity to Jesus so that at Jesus' return or when he calls you home, the end of your life, you will receive that crown. It's a prize. It's the athlete's prize for perseverance. It's not for the person who runs fastest or scores the most points in the Christian game. It's the one who holds on. Hold on, he says, like you're hanging off a cliff. Hold on so that no one takes your crown. I was on the phone with my daughter, India, recently. They were at, um, Renee and the kids were at the Relay for Life. They do it every year, raising money for cancer research. You just got to walk around a 400-meter track for as long as you can, and you raise money per lap kind of thing. And, um, and I knew that India was psyched for this because she knows that the grandma she's never met died of cancer. She's got that. She knows that her pa, Renee's dad, died of cancer didn't ever really get to know him very well. It's personal, all right? And she is, the reason that she's my hiking buddy is that she never runs out of energy. You remember the Energizer Bunny? Yeah, that's her. She never gives up. And so I was on the phone to her late at night. I don't know if it was 10 o'clock at night. They had been there since 8 in the morning, and she was... She was on her 96th lap of a 400-meter track, so 100 laps is 40 Ks. And she was, I could just hear her foot, feet shuffling, and she was sort of just like groaning, like, I, ne- I have to do 100 laps. Everyone else has given up and eating you know, hot dogs, and she was, just, she was out there in the dark shuffling around, and I, all I could do was say to her, just keep going, sweetie. Just keep going. You know, just hold on. I know how much you want to do those 100 laps. And she did it. She persevered. She made it to the end. And she didn't get a crown, but she got a bead for every lap that she did. She had this long thing of beads that she has on her wall to this day. It means something, right? It's symbolic of perseverance, of conquering, of victory, of Nike. So it is with the crown that Jesus promises to those who hold on. Finally, Laodicea. Let's take a look. Verse, 17, uh, verse 15 to 17, you guys probably know this one. He says, I know your works that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, insipid, and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I've become wealthy, I need nothing. Sound familiar? You don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That's the judgment. What he's saying to them is that they lack zeal. They lack passion. Passion comes from that word suffering, right? It it costs you something to be passionate. 
It's an investment. It takes energy. It's related to the alert thing. It's related to the perseverance thing. What these people lack is anything amounting to momentum, zeal. They're lukewarm. I can't think of anything that's good lukewarm. Jesus says, be zealous, repent, turn away, turn around from that insipid, lukewarm nothingness, ambivalence. I remember being told as a, must have been 16-year-old kid, it was the first time I raised my hands to sing in church. It was the first time I ever felt like any meaningful connection with what I was singing. And the guy standing next to me, who's one of the youth leaders, took me aside afterwards and said, you don't want to be too into it, you know? It's a bit weird to be too into it. To hell with that. Jesus says, be zealous. Throw yourself into this thing. Grace is a gift. It's free, but it will cost you everything. Now I want to finish with um, the words that Jesus has, words of encouragement to those who conquer um, but uh, I'm out of time, and I'm conscious that we're, we're, we've still got a bit to get through this morning. So if you want to know what Jesus says to those who conquer, just read the last couple of verses from each of the letters, and you'll see over and over again, it says the same language, to the one who conquers, I will. To the one who conquers, I will. It's a promise, and it's all future orientated. To the one who conquers, and then a description of the new heavens and the new earth. New creation, our destination, those of us in this room who persevere. Christianity is not a, a life insurance policy, a fire insurance policy against hell and condemnation, right? You don't sign it when you were 14 and then just hold on, you know, and just cruise down the river for the rest of your life. It's a daily repentance, a daily perseverance, and only for those who persevere, by God's grace, the prize is eternal life, new creation life. Jesus conquered so that we could conquer. Verse 21 of chapter 3, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus Nike'd so that we can Nike. All I've got left is prayers to this end. So let's bow our heads. Father, only you can lead us to the promised land. We have no Moses. We have no Aaron. Our leaders are too inept. Our pastors are too broken. We need you. Please lead us from your position on the throne of heaven. Please give us grace to persevere. Please give us humility to repent. Please 
Help us to be a community of people helping people make all of life all about Jesus for all of our days. Please, we need you. Be gracious. Bless us with perseverance and fidelity to our Lord, our Master, our Saviour, our King. We pray it in his name. Amen. We're going to just sit tight. Let the words of this song wash over you. And for the love of God, please consider where it is that you are out of step with where Jesus wants you to be. Where we as a community are out of step with where Jesus wants us to be as a church. And pray for yourself and pray for us that we would repent.